0: Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash GVG. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS. Welcome to this Peer Voice activity on obesity. This activity comprises six streaming episodes featuring Dr. Kevin Fernando. And Professor Pinar Topsever. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, my name is Kevin Fernando. I'm a GP partner at North Berwick Health Centre near Edinburgh in Scotland and also Scottish lead of the Primary Care Diabetes Society. Welcome to this six episode activity titled simplified strategies to optimize obesity management for primary point of contact clinicians. In this episode, I'm going to discuss the emerging and changing paradigm for the management of obesity away from a focus just on body mass. And then I'll also discuss the need for simple systematic approaches, strategies to identify individuals who might benefit from some of the new pharmacological treatment options available to us now to help achieve and sustain significant weight loss? So, what about this new paradigm from the management of obesity? Well, it's now well established that obesity is a chronic long term condition with multiple pathophysiological aspects, including inflammation, neurohumoral changes, and impacts on appetite and satiety. It involves more than just an increase in body mass. And of course, then, similar to other long-term chronic conditions such as type 2 diabetes and hypertension, obesity is relapsing in nature and can lead to a range of complications, including cardiometabolic disease, such as ischemic heart disease, heart failure, type 2 diabetes, and also malignancy. Sadly, obesity is now established to be a risk factor for at least 13 different forms of malignancy. And despite the obesity pandemic that we face and its associated medical complications, the obesity remains underdiagnosed with poor access to weight management services and these novel evidence-based pharmacological therapies. And this is a global problem Significant progress is yet to be made worldwide in healthcare systems in the delivery of clinically meaningful interventions for the prevention, management, and long-term treatment of obesity. And just over the last couple of years, we've seen a rapid evolution in the evidence base for the pharmacological treatment of obesity. We better understand obesity, as I've discussed, as a chronic condition. And we now have medicines, evidence-based medicines, that can directly tackle some of the key pathophysiological abnormalities in obesity, such as appetite and satiety. So current thinking, sadly, is still around roundabout hedonic eating in obesity, uh, eating for pleasure rather than just nutrition, due to the unfettered access to indulgent foodstuffs, foods high in fat and sugar. And of course, this in combination with a sedentary lifestyle often leads, leads to that advice of eat less and move more. Now acknowledge these are contributing factors, But as I've said already, it is increasingly recognized that there are many homeostatic mechanisms at play affecting both appetite and satiety that are pivotal in the development of obesity. So what we need to do is address these factors early on in the management of obesity. Look at that increased appetite that reduced satiety because calorie restriction alone, of course, is unlikely to be a sustainable long-term solution if there's ongoing pathologically increased hunger or reduced satiety. And again, as mentioned, recent compelling evidence uh, shows us that we now have obesity medicines that can directly impact both appetite and satiety, which again will hopefully drive a paradigm shift in how we manage obesity. So what strategies do we have available to us to identify individuals that might benefit from some of these novel pharmacological therapies? Well, many of us are very familiar with BMI, the Body Mass Index. It is defined as a person's weight in kilograms divided by the square of their height in meters, so kilograms per meter squared. We have a number of BMI thresholds uh, uh, that, that we use as cutoffs to identify obesity. So it is specifically three classes of obesity: uh, BMI 30 to 34.9, obesity class 1, 35 to 39.9, obesity class 2, and above 40, obesity class 3. Now importantly, these cutoffs are not valid for children and adolescents. And they do need to be ethnically adjusted, particularly for non-Caucasian ethnicities, such as uh, South Asians, where we need to reduce these cutoffs by 2.5. Another useful tool is measuring waist circumference. Waist circumference has again been well established as a good proxy for quantifying adipose and also predicting future cardiometabolic risk. Normal waist circumference for a man is less than 94 centimeters and for a woman, less than 80 centimeters. And cutoffs uh, indicating increased future cardiometabolic risk over 88 centimeters for women and over 102 centimeters for men. Again, we do need to be aware that we may need to ethnically adjust these cutoffs. So to summarize then, obesity should now be considered as a chronic relapsing condition, similar to other long-term conditions such as type two diabetes and hypertension. And we need to change our approach to the management of obesity, driven by this new understanding of obesity and its pathophysiological abnormalities, and also by compelling new evidence for uh, medicines that directly address some of these pathophysiological uh, abnormalities, such as abnormal hunger and satiety. So thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that episode helpful.
1: Hello, uh, I'm Pınar Topsevar from Acıbade Mehmet Ali Aydınlar University School of Medicine, Department of Family Medicine in Istanbul, Turkey. And I would like to welcome you to episode episode two, which is about starting uh, the conversation on weight management. So, actually, um, this is a sensitive issue uh, for our patients, although it might be one of many conversations we have in our clinic uh, that day, but we should keep in mind that this is uh, something a lot of people might not be very comfortable to talk about. So first of all, before we start addressing this issue, we should ask for permission. So uh, the patient should know that we want to address this. We want to talk about their weight. We should have information about the anthropometric uh, measures of our patients, so we should know how much overweight they are. And um, um, when it comes to uh, talk with them about the impact of this condition of overweight or obesity on their health, so the risk communication, actually, um, uh, we should, again, Ask for permission Uh, And once uh, the patient agrees uh, to talk about this topic and to hear more from you, you can uh, actually already engage in the micro skills of motivational interviewing. And there you can agree together on, uh, you know, realistic um, uh, steps, uh, how to proceed. And uh, it's also very, very important that uh, we uh, assure the patient that uh, we'll always be there for them to uh, assist them in uh, this journey. So, how uh, to start the conversation? First of all, let's make sure that our uh, physical environment is comfortable. So we should make sure that we have uh, larger, wider chairs or a comfortable sofa where uh, our patients can sit. Um, and then um, let's uh, be very, uh, you know, uh, attentive about our non-verbal uh, communication uh, because. Um, uh, it might, anything that we don't even notice might come over as uh, uh, blaming or stigmatizing. So it's not only what we say, uh, but it's only uh, it's also how we say it. Um, uh, so um, it's very, very important that, uh, of course, with the language to avoid um, words like obese or even fat, uh, which might be very demoralizing for our patients. But also our tone of voice, our gestures, our posture, even our uh, facial expression, even, um, you know, lifting your eyebrows sometimes may come over as... um, Judgmental. So that is something to pay attention about. Uh, active listening is very important. So really do listen. Do not interrupt. And uh, the patient should understand uh, and trust you that she or he are the most important thing for you uh and uh just to remind us of the micro skills uh so start this conversation with an open ended question like um how do you feel? Uh, about um, your, your weight, your body weight, uh, anything that comes over uh, positive from uh, your patient, pick that up very selectively and affirm it by reflecting, mean, meaning uh, by repeating it to them. Uh, and in the end, uh, summarize again, but uh, again, uh, select the positive change talk when you uh, summarize uh, micro episodes in uh, the conversation with your patient. And uh, again, we already mentioned that in the previous uh, part, but before we give advice, first of all, um, uh, pay attention not to overload your patient with too much information and medical jargon, but get their permission first. Talk in a neutral language, so no me talk, no you talk, uh, third-person style, like, uh, for instance, studies have shown that Mm, uh, physical exercise programs and low calorie diets are effective in uh, assisting uh, for weight loss. And very, very important, give responsibility to the patient. Make it clear to them in your conversation that although you will do your utmost to assist them, it's still them who are uh, going to lose the weight. So nobody can do that on behalf of them for them. Yes. So, in uh, summary, uh, let's not forget that obesity is a disease uh, that uh, goes along with many health risks and uh, can be prevented and can be treated in our approach as a clinician. Let's not forget that. And uh, on behalf of our patients, uh, let's not forget that it Uh, this condition does not only come along with uh, a medical, biological burden, but also with a big psychosocial burden, so the sensitive issue thing. That's why we need a special set of communication skills when talking to our patients about uh, their body weight. Uh, But patient-centered approach also here will make the difference uh, for you to form a very trusted, open uh, and accepting relationship um, and communication with your patient. Uh, And uh, with that being said, of course, empathy uh, is one part of patient-centeredness and you being very accepting and uh, 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 non-stigmatizing will be uh, actually um, uh, the attitude that crowns it all.
0: So in this episode, I'm going to discuss key obesity guideline recommendations on interventions that might be warranted for individuals based, stratified by their weight. So I'll discuss the importance of looking at obesity-related diseases or complications as a contributing factor to treatment planning, and also signpost to some helpful resources to hopefully simplify those conversations with people living with overweight or obesity in how we can discuss lifestyle interventions as an overall component of obesity management. So let's talk then about the importance of evaluating these obesity-related complications in the management of obesity. Again, a new approach is required here in the management of obesity, due to our changed understanding of obesity as a long-term chronic condition. We should now look at percentage weight loss from baseline as a target biomarker in people living with obesity, similar to how we use HbA1c as a target for people living with type 2 diabetes or LDL cholesterol targets in people living with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease to mitigate future specific complications of obesity. So for example, in people living uh, with uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease uh, as a consequence of their obesity, we know three to 5% weight loss reduces hepatic steatosis that increased fat content in uh, hepatocytes. Whereas five to 7% weight loss can lead to the resolution of NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, and actually greater than 10% weight loss from baseline can improve hepatic fibrosis. Whereas people living with obesity and type 2 diabetes, we have clear recommendations, guidance from the joint consensus report from the American Diabetes Association and the European Association for the Study of Diabetes that tells us weight loss of 5 to 10% down from baseline confers metabolic improvements in type 2 diabetes in terms of glycemic control and actually weight loss of greater than 10 to 15 percent can actually lead to remission, reversal and remission of type 2 diabetes. Different complications of obesity require different amounts of weight loss for both prevention and also treatment. And we're in a new era of evidence-based therapies for obesity. We have therapies now such as the GLP-1 analogs, liraglutide or semaglutide, and also terzepatide, a dual GLP-GIP receptor agonist that can facilitate this treat-to-target approach due to their compelling weight loss efficacy and also their reassuring safety profiles. So this allows us to truly individualize care for people living with obesity, like we would for our patients living with diabetes or with hypertension. And hopefully this will help us improve both quality and importantly, quantity of life. So what are some of the approaches we might use in obesity management? In uh, episode one, we discussed measuring waist circumference, a good quantifier of visceral fat and a good predictor of future cardiometabolic risk. I've just mentioned the importance of treating comorbidities such as type 2 diabetes and NAFLD to improve quality and, again, quantity of life. Discuss that target-driven approach. 5 to 10% weight, uh, weight loss from baseline is sufficient to decrease many of these comorbidities. Discuss those all-important lifestyle interventions. Um, Lifestyle behavioral modifications can induce five to 15% weight loss, which of course is motivating in itself um, and can help improve body image, self-esteem and quality of life. Discussing increasing physical activity is very important as well for people living with obesity to lower mortality risk. Simply uh, increasing physical activity by 500 steps a day can have an impact on future cardiovascular risk. And importantly, we need to discuss with individuals the importance of of avoiding weight cycling. So avoiding significant fluctuating weight. Exercise in particular can be really helpful in maintaining any weight loss. So to summarize this episode, obesity care should very much be based on evidence-based principles of a long-term chronic condition that validates an individual's lived experiences. We shouldn't be giving simplistic advice of eat less, move more. We need to address those root drivers of obesity, such as appetite and satiety. And we should counsel and discuss patients uh, about a multifactorial approach to the management of obesity, uh, involving evidence-informed interventions, such as medical nutrition therapy, physical activity, psychological interventions, Surgery and pharmacotherapy too. So thanks for listening everyone. I hope you found that episode helpful.
1: I would like to welcome you to episode, episode four. And here we will talk about how to, um, select candidates for weight loss management with, uh, pharmacotherapy with, um, uh, medication. Uh, Actually, uh, we know that uh, obesity is a disease. It's a serious condition which uh, goes along with uh, several health risks and uh, bears adverse outcomes. And uh, obesity actually increases the risk for cardiovascular outcomes at least double. But when it's paired uh, with uh, a complication or um, another uh, disease like diabetes, that uh, risk increase can go up up to five folds uh, the risk. So this is a serious condition which we need uh, to uh, monitor and which. We need to address and treat. Um, and as for the medications, um, maybe it's a good idea to all also have a peek into the past. Um, the anti obesity medications we know from the past, although they led to uh, some uh, weight loss in uh, RCTs that has been shown, uh, they didn't uh, show Um, well, considerable weight loss. They had a lot of unpleasant side effects. Uh, A few were withdrawn from the market due to safety reasons in the past and uh, they did not um, produce or there is no evidence uh, of their benefit for um, uh, cardiovascular outcomes uh, neither morbidity nor mortality. Uh, So um, a good drug uh, for obesity um, would be, of course, one that uh, is easy to use, uh, that has, uh, is safe, uh, first of all, has not uh, too many uh, side effects, is well tolerated, in other words, is uh, effective, so leads uh, to um, a good proportion of wh- uh, weight loss, which is um, also decreasing the health risks and would also, of course, improve quality of life. So, when we look at uh, who will be eligible for pharmacotherapy for uh, obesity, uh, there are, of course, evidence-based guidelines for that, and there are also guidelines for primary care. Uh, But uh, basically, the threshold uh, for BMI for starting uh, pharmacotherapy for uh, this condition would be uh, 30 kilograms per um, square meter. But if there is a complicating uh, comorbid condition, like for instance hypertension or diabetes, this would lower the threshold for pharmacotherapy to 27. Uh, BMI. Uh, of course, this also always goes along with um, lifestyle modification being a healthy diet and uh, exercise. And the second option uh, for treatment of uh, obesity is uh, bariatric surgery. So let's have a look at the compounds we have available uh, to treat uh, obesity, which leads to uh, weight loss. Uh, There are um, uh, several uh, drug groups, uh, for instance, uh, like uh, the combination of nitroxene and bupropion. uh, But there are also the um, newer uh, compounds, uh, the GLP-1 receptor agonists like liraglutide and semaglutide. And uh, they have been shown to uh, lead to uh, considerable weight loss, um, uh, semaglutide, for instance, uh, is standing out with, um, uh, as compared to placebo, of course, 15 to 16 uh, percent weight loss, and there are also uh, newer compounds with uh, promising results, but they are not approved for the treatment of obesity. Uh, So, uh, in summary, let's not forget that pharmacotherapy is a part of the comprehensive approach to uh, obesity disease management. And it aids uh, our patient to be compliant to um, achieve weight loss results, which uh, will make them feel uh, more healthy uh, and which will improve their uh, quality of life and cut down their obesity obesity related health risks. And uh, the newer agents have also uh, been uh, shown to uh, prevent uh, the development uh, of obesity comorbidities like uh, type 2 diabetes mellitus.
0: In this episode, I'm going to discuss how we can increase awareness amongst healthcare professionals, and also confidence in choosing and using GLP-1 receptor agonists for the management of obesity. So we've been using GLP-1 receptor agonists for over 10 years now for people living with type 2 diabetes with compelling uh, impact on glucose control and secondary benefits of weight reduction. But we now have compelling data for GLP-1 receptor agonists for people living with obesity and without type 2 diabetes. Specifically, liraglutide at the higher dose of three milligrams, nearly an 8% reduction uh, in body weight from baseline. And semaglutide 2.4 milligrams, and nearly a 15% reduction in baseline body weight. So uh, significant impacts on weight reduction in people even without type 2 diabetes with GLP-1 receptor agonists. And on the back of these studies, we now have two products, liraglutide and semaglutide, that have been recommended by the EMA, the European Medicines Agency, approved for the management of obesity in adults. Uh, Those with a BMI over 30, or those with a BMI over 27, with obesity and at least one additional weight-related comorbidity such as dysglycemia or type 2 diabetes. So we have a new tool in our toolbox for managing weight loss in people living with obesity. So how do we initiate and titrate GLP-1 receptor agonists? Here I want to take you through some practical, pragmatic uh, messages in choosing and initiating and mitigating side effects of GLP-1 receptor agonists. We must be aware we have a whole range of GLP-1 receptor agonists available to us, but only two are currently licensed for obesity, liraglutide and semaglutide. And of course, we need to balance the compelling benefits of weight loss against potential side effects to maintain that risk-benefit ratio. Um, And of course, we do need to be aware of the cost of this class of drug as well. We need to refer to local or national guidelines or consensus, which is a challenge because much of the compelling evidence for GLP-1s in obesity has only been published over the last 12 to 24 months. So it can be a challenge for guidelines to keep up to date. And of course, we need to be aware of that person living with obesity. What is their age and functional status? Do they have any significant past medical history that might uh, um, uh, call for a more cautious approach in monitoring their GLP-1 receptor agonists? So in terms of contraindications or cautions, be aware of any background severe gastrointestinal disease, such as inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, or ulcerative colitis. Also, be aware of any background of acute pancreatitis or gallbladder disease. Currently, GLP-1s are not licensed in pregnancy. Review other therapies alongside GLP-1 receptor agonists, particularly in people living with diabetes, those on sulfonylurea or uh, on insulin may need the doses of these drugs reduced to reduce the potential risk of hypoglycemia. And those on gliptins or DPP-4 inhibitors alongside GLP-1s, gliptins can simply be stopped because both these classes of drugs, GLP-1, DPP-4 inhibitors work along the same incretin axis. So what common adverse effects of GLP-1s do we need to be aware of? Well, by far the commonest adverse effects with GLP-1 receptor agonists are the gastrointestinal adverse effects. But the key take home message here, they're usually mild or moderate, They're dose dependent and they usually decline with time. So we need to reassure patients. Often patients might describe a mild dyspepsia, uh, maybe a, a mild diarrhea or constipation. These are dose dependent and fade with time. We do need to talk about possible postprandial fullness, nausea and possible worsening of gastroesophageal reflux. But again, these symptoms tend to fade with time. Abdominal pain, per se, is unusual if people do describe significant abdominal pain, do exclude other gastrointestinal pathologies such as pancreatitis. And rarely we see injection site reactions, do counsel about injection technique and the importance of rotating injection site. So what strategies should we discuss with patients to mitigate these possible GI side effects? We can recommend eating smaller portion sizes, smaller meals, and importantly, tell individuals to stop eating as soon as they start to feel full. Avoiding fried or fatty foods is helpful because fat itself slows gastric emptying, uh, which can worsen the GI side effects. Ensure adequate fluid intake, at least two to two and a half liters of clear fluids a day. We can, in some cases, consider consider short-term antiemetic in persisting nausea. And importantly, discuss sick day guidance advised to temporarily stop the GLP-1 during any acute to dehydrating illness. And finally, once again, reassure individuals that symptoms are mostly mild and transient and fade with time. So to conclude this episode, then GLP-1 receptor agonists are a new powerful tool in our toolbox to manage obesity They can help facilitate clinically meaningful weight loss and tackle directly some of the pathophysiological abnormalities in people living with obesity, namely appetite and satiety. We need to refer to contemporaneous guidelines or consensus on choosing the right GLP-1 for people living with obesity. And of course, we need to assess that individual as a person. What is their functional status? Do they have any past medical history that may suggest we need to proceed with caution with a GLP-1? And of course, we need to monitor and counsel appropriately about side effects, but reassure individuals that for GLP-1 receptor agonists, the benefits outweigh the adverse effects for the vast majority of people living with obesity.
1: Welcome to episode six, and now uh, we will talk about a red flags for referral of our patients with obesity from primary to secondary care. Actually, there are a lot of things uh, that we can do for our uh, patients with obesity in primary care with our primary care team. First of all, uh, mostly uh, GPs are the first uh, ones to assess the situation and diagnose overweight and obesity. So we're the first ones to talk about this with the patient. Uh, And if the patient agrees, uh, then we would be the ones who advise them on lifestyle change, like a a healthy diet and um, appropriate uh, physical exercise. And uh, we would uh, also help them uh, in a behavioral way if, if they uh, need uh, that kind of help. We would um, uh, also uh, encourage their friends and family members to assist them uh, in this journey of uh, weight loss. Uh, and uh, if necessary, as we already discussed in the previous episode, we can also start pharmacotherapy. But what to do when all these measures don't work. Well, then uh, it's time to think about referring our patient to secondary care, to specialist care. And uh, in that uh, case, we should actually uh, look uh, at, uh, first of all, the level of uh, obesity. For instance, if it's a morbid obese uh, person with a BMI of 40 and above, then it would make sense to uh, refer that patient from the very beginning to secondary care. Um, If it's a person uh, who has a BMI between 30 and uh, 35, Um, then uh, we can follow up our patient uh, in primary care. We can start uh, with lifestyle change, healthy diet, uh, exercise, uh, and eventually also uh, pharmacotherapy, which is indicated from uh, BMI 30 and above, as we already discussed previously. Um, But we should also look uh, at the risk status and the possibilities um, uh, for complications, uh, comorbidities, that is, like diabetes, uh, hypertension, dyslipidemia, etc. Uh, so, uh, if those are present, it would be worthwhile to uh, consult secondary care and to follow up the patient together. So, as I said, um, uh, when thinking about referral, um uh, first of all, um, uh, we should have a look at the level of obesity. So the BMI, the initial BMI is important for us. And uh, we should um, uh, have a look at possible risk of complications, uh, which are indicated by uh, comorbidities. So if it's a, a morbidly obese person or an obese person with comorbidities and risks for complications, then we should refer them to secondary care. Thank you for listening to this episode, and uh, I hope it was useful for you. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.